Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I am joined tonight by my co-host, Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Hey, Ellie. How are you? You gave me a start there. I was like, I thought I was joined by my co-host, Catherine. (laughs) Thanks for being here. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Yep, there's just a little pause. That's okay. And um, Jean is out there live tweeting the show, so we're sending her sober love over the airways. And Amanda has a much-deserved night off. Well, here on the Bubble Hour, we are always trying to think of topics that are compelling to our listeners, but the heart of every show is always our guests and their recovery stories. Everyone who participates on the show is a volunteer whose willingness to honestly share their experience, strength, and hope helps all of us keep sober. So tonight is going to be an open format episode in the style of a speaker discussion meeting where one guest shares their recovery story. And this evening, we are thrilled to welcome Dana B. to the show. Hi, Dana. Hi, Ellie. Hi, Catherine. Thank you so much for having hey. me. Thank so you glad for being you're here. here. Absolutely. And Dana is coming up very quickly on One Year of Sobriety, and she is here tonight to share her experience of strength and hope with all of us. So, Dana, if you wanted to start by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about yourself and then follow that up with your uh, your addiction and recovery story, that would be fantastic. Well, thank you so much, and thank you again for having me. It's really great to be here. Um, I am, yes, I'm coming up on a year in a couple days here, and I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Um, I'm Yay. 42 years, <laughs> thank you, I am 42, um, I am a recent um, single mom of two beautiful children uh, who keep me busy and um, along with a full-time job, um, and I guess um, I'll just get into my story, um, kind of where it started and where it ended up. Um, Great. So growing up, I wasn't really exposed to alcohol very much. Um, I do, my birth father is an addict and an alcoholic, um, but I I didn't really know him. So there's definitely the the genetics going on. Um, But I wasn't, there wasn't alcohol in the home. Um, My mom, my stepdad never really drank. Uh, My grandparents didn't. Um, when I was a teen, I, I was maybe 15 the first time I was at a party and was offered a beer or a wine cooler. I don't remember which. Um, and I liked it. I liked it right away. Um, it helped me. I'm, I'm socially awkward, <laughs> very shy, reserved, um, and it helped me open up. And I, I received a lot of positive responses um, because I was very shy. All of a sudden, people, um, when I was drinking, and more vocal people would would let me know that oh wow you're more fun when you're drinking, <laughs> um, so mm-hmm. I got a lot of <laughs> exactly a lot of uh, positive reinforcement um, in my teen years, but I never really took to it back then. I would I would drink if I was at a party, and then as I got a little bit older, maybe if I went to a club um, or was hanging out with a big group, but it wasn't very often, and even through my early 20s I didn't drink all that often um but what I'm what I realized once I I put some real effort into recovery is I didn't drink often but I didn't have an off button so uh when I would those few times I would drink I would drink till I was most most times in a blackout um then in my mid-20s, I met my future husband, and um, he was definitely a drinker. He was a binge drinker, and his family was all drinkers, and I would I would go to their house for dinner, and there was always wine, and I, I at first I thought, well, this is odd. Why do we have wine at the dinner table? This, we didn't have this growing up. Um, 
so it was it was really prevalent in his family, and I started partaking more and more, and I found that I really liked the taste of Chardonnay. Um, but again, well, the whole time we were dating, it was uh, not all that often. Um, but again, no off button. So when I did it, I did it, and I did it well. Um, mm-hmm. So we got married, and then about two years after we were married, we had our first baby, my daughter. And we lived in a townhouse, and there were um, there was an environment in this in this complex, and a lot of partying. It was kind of a blue collar environment, so a lot of beer. You know, the guys would come home after a long day at work and um, crack open a beer in their garages. And my husband would he started hanging out with them and drinking a lot with them, and he would come home. You know. Two, three, four o'clock in the morning, he would walk in the door, and I wasn't happy about that. Um, but when I had my when I had my daughter, it became a real problem because I became uh, I obviously became resentful. Um, I became very lonely. I, I was you know this new endeavor being a parent is scary enough, and I was kind of doing it on my own. And and my husband's life didn't seem to change very much. Mm. And um, about a year after she was born, I got a new neighbor, a woman, and her husband moved next door. And I became friendly with the woman, and she would come over while all the guys were out partying in the garages. She would come over with some wine. And I um, found that I became not less resentful, but it didn't matter so much anymore that he wasn't around because I was still having a good time. I could still have fun. And um, about that time I was promoted at work and I had um, people who reported to me and that was very stressful for me. Um, I want people to like me and that's really hard when you have people who report to you. You can't be, um, you can't be the friend anymore. And um, so I'd be really stressed at work, and I would come home, and it be- it became kind of not a daily thing at this point, but it became it became a lot to me. It became very important to me, and it re- it resolved a lot of anguish, a lot of loneliness, resentfulness, stress, and boredom in my life. Because quite honestly, being a, a new parent or being a parent can be awfully boring at times. So. Um, Again, it wasn't daily at this point, but I started recognizing that I was drinking a lot. And I started waking up in the middle of the night with a racing heart. Um, And so I decided, okay, well, it's the Chardonnay, because it's really easy to drink a couple glasses of Chardonnay. So I'm going to switch to red wine, and that worked for a little while. Then um, when my daughter was, she was almost... Three, um, I had my second child, my son, and when I got pregnant with him, I thought, well, this is great. This is I'm, I can't drink while I'm pregnant with him. I won't start again after he's or I didn't know it was a him yet, but after the baby's born, I won't I won't pick up again. And immediately after my son was born, it was within two days. My husband again was out partying with the guys, um, and I picked up my first drink again after my son was born. And um, I felt, now I had two babies, and I felt more isolated. I felt more alone, more resentful towards my husband. Um, And so I just started drinking again a lot more to try to, um, I didn't have good coping tools at that point, so I was trying to resolve these issues in a really horrible way. But my drinking kind of skyrocketed, and um, it got to the point where um, I became a daily drinker. I, towards the end of my drinking, I was um, one and a half to two bottles of wine a night. I was hiding it. I would buy um, those little bottles, you know, the little single-serving bottles, Mm -hmm. and I would hide them. (laughs) I would hide them in my closet so I could hide from, you know, by this time my daughter was, uh, let's it's about seven, eight, so she started noticing and I would hide in the closet, and I'd pretend I was doing laundry or whatever I was doing. Um, I would hide them in the garage. 
I would I would buy this is so embarrassing, but I would buy the big boxes of wine so it didn't seem like mm-hmm. I was really drinking as much as I was. Um I started drinking in the mornings. I would go out to the garage pretending I was doing laundry and I would drink first thing in the morning. My husband caught me a couple of times. Um so that that added some uh that added some resentment on his part and um I'm sure a lot of anguish. Um, I start. I started doing things I said I would never do. Um, I would never drink and drive, and I did that. Um, I would never. I would never show up. Uh, gosh, I would never show up at a school function after drinking, and it got to the point where I couldn't go to a function. I couldn't go to a one of you know a, a kid's. Uh, track practice or soccer practice or whatever practice without having at least one glass of wine. Um, Mm -hmm. And it it just, it it became, uh, it became what I lived for. Um, On the weekends, my husband would, he would go um, bike riding or uh, dirt bike riding, and I would plan my activities with my kids based on where I could drink so it wouldn't look like I had a problem. You know, oh, I can go to a Mexican restaurant at lunch and I can have a margarita. So, it, you know, but that's what you do at a Mexican restaurant, so I don't really have a problem. Mm. Um, but but I knew mm. I did. Um, so about four years ago, I came across an article in a parenting magazine by a woman um, that uh, – she identified it as an alcoholic, and her story seemed so close to mine. And all of a sudden, I felt I it was it was like a light click. Like I'm not alone. There is someone else out there. So um, after I read the article, I don't remember if if something in the article directed to directed me to a blog or um, a, an online support group. At the time, there was um, an online support a Yahoo group um, that I found. And through that, I found someone um, near me who directed me and met me actually at a recovery meeting. And um, it was uh, it was horrifying for me. I was mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I I was so embarrassed and so um, I guess embarrassed is it. But I I went to this meeting and there were so many women and so many women who not who were not what I thought of when I thought of alcoholics. At this point, I still thought alcoholics were um, living under a bridge or had lost everything. And I hadn't lost anything at this point other than maybe some self-respect. Um, so I went to this meeting, and, and I, I didn't really connect with anyone. Um, I... I met a couple women. I kept in touch a little bit. Um, I was able to string together 30 days, and then then I thought, well, I'm just going to have a glass tonight, and I'm going to have a glass again tonight. And before I knew it, I was back to drinking as much as I had been before. Um, and the next three years went like that. I would I would go to another meeting, and I'd string together 30 days, and then I would I would try again to moderate. Um, I wanted to be normal. I wanted to drink like a normal person because I liked, you know, I loved that first glass of wine. I loved that feeling I got when I would, you know, open a bottle and and have that first glass. I still loved that. Um, But the last, let's say, year of my drinking got to the point where I no longer got a buzz. From drinking, I went from sober to blackout drunk in 60 seconds. There, you know, it was there was not that mm-hmm. feeling anymore. And I'd I'd wake up at, again at two o'clock in the morning every night at this point, heart racing. You know, how did I how did I get here? You know, I don't even remember the night. Um, just it, it never it didn't feel good anymore. And I started, um, at this point, I started to think it would just be better for everyone if I wasn't here. And I I got mm. to be on the verge of suicidal. 
and I thought it would be better for my kids, it would be better for my family, it would be better for everyone if I just, um, I don't think I could have actually done it myself, but if I had just accidentally um, died, I, it would be better for everyone. Hmm. And yet I still went on for another year or so. Um, and then May 4th of 2014, I went to a wedding and I told myself I am not going to drink tonight because that's what I did every night. I'm not drinking tonight. And I ended up drinking and I ended up blacking out. Um, I was, my kids were with my sister. I, um, my husband was trying to get me to leave the wedding. I wouldn't leave. We were late. It was a Sunday night. We were late getting the kids. So my sister and her husband had to stay up really late waiting for us. Um, I threw up in front of my kids. I threw up in my bed that night. Um, I had to wake up the next morning at 4 in the morning to go to work. I ended up going to work. I'm sure I was still drunk. And I got to work, and I said, I can't do this anymore. Um, Mm. I I just, I'd had enough. I don't know what it was about this particular time, but I held on to it. And I've held on to it for almost a year now. And um, I'm going to hold on to it with everything I have because... The last year, I've, I've had so many changes in my life. I, I, um, I've done kind of everything they tell you not to do in your first year, but I've done it, and I don't necessarily uh, recommend it. But um, my husband and I did separate. I filed for divorce. We sold our house. Um, but for me, everything I've done this last year that I've done sober has reaffirmed for me how joyful life can be in those little moments and I didn't have that when I was drinking I didn't have little moments I didn't have any moments that brought me joy Um, it was all about numbing and um, now I have you know now I can spend time with my kids at the pool and just enjoy hearing them laugh Um, and that's I mean it's, it's it's a miracle for me and so anything I can do to hold on to this. And I have bad days. And like I said, there's been so much change, and a lot of it has been really hard, but I'm able to do it. And I'm able to do it with a clear head now. And um, this is just such a gift. Even the hard, hard, hard days are such a gift. Because I, and that's the other thing. I know now that there are going to be hard days, but I'm going to get through them. And the next day, or maybe not the next day, but maybe the next week, there's going to be happiness and joy again. And again, I did not have that when I was drinking. So um, that's kind of my story. <laughs> and wow, I'm, Dana. I'm wow. just really happy to be here. <laughs> oh, my gosh. that is it's, Your story is so powerful. And, you know, we were talking before the show started about how – how amazing that that feeling of me too is when you hear somebody even somebody you've never met before but somebody that that shares your story and you know you remember how alone you felt when you were drinking and hiding and you know the exhaustion of managing that double life and you feel like you're the only one on the planet doing those things and feeling as badly as you mm-hmm. feel and then you hear it come from somebody else's mouth and you understand that you were never alone when you were going through that and it's it's a really powerful moment and I relate to so much of your story. I mean I just about every single thing that you talked about is something that I can relate to the progression of the drinking, the no off switch, you know, how it stopped working, but yeah. even that isn't enough to stop that you know, that emotional scooped out feeling of not really wanting to kill yourself, but just I, I describe it as sort of trying to erase myself from the picture like I just need to be gone and you know that hopelessness and powerlessness that we feel and to hear you talk about everything you've been through in the past year sober and you know experiencing those moments of joy is is so inspiring I, I thank you so much for sharing that so honestly really incredible well thank you and this is Catherine, and, and I I absolutely agree. And I was sort of jotting down some of the things that you were saying that resonated so what so much with me. And one thing that I really notice when I talk to other people in recovery is there's a real honesty there about what's going on with us. I mean, I feel like in society, 
you're supposed to prance around and say that motherhood is the greatest thing that ever happened to you. And yet, mm-hmm. you know, there are times when it is, but then there are times when it's boring. There's times that you have resentment. There's times whatever. And then just in the actual progression of the alcoholism, I, I'm i still struck every day when I speak to somebody in recovery of like, oh, thank God I wasn't the only one drinking you know, a bottle plus of wine or, you know, we, we hear some of the things that you said all the time, you know, the boxes of wine. And, like, we think that mm-hmm. we did that. We were the only ones who thought of that. Um, <laughs> and it's such a it's such a relief. Yeah, like we were so clever. But right? it was such a relief, you know, to just know, oh, okay, like, you know, the laundry basket. Ellie, you've talked about the laundry basket and the middle oh, bottles yeah. of wine before, right? That was like, my favorite hiding spot because yeah. my husband never did laundry. Mm-hmm. I thought I was so clever. Yeah, that was a good <laughs> hiding spot for me for a long time. <laughs> and yep. shoes. Shoes were <laughs> great And you have that, that moment I where you stick your foot in. in a boot that you haven't worn for a while and there's an empty in there or a bottle in there. You think, oh, my God. <laughs> yes. Yep. <laughs> Oh, and the hiding, it's so exhausting that, you know, the amount of mental energy that we pour into being able to maintain that lifestyle. And, you know, one of the things I I didn't realize before I got sober was that as hard as it was, all that mental energy I spent running around trying to manage my drinking was able to be poured into things that could bring me moments of joy. And, and, um, you know, I, I was struck, too, how you talked about boredom, because that was a big one for me. I identify with you talking about having a job and being a manager and a people pleaser. That was really hard for me. And, you know, loving my children. I also have a daughter and a son that came in that order. And, you know, but still feeling that that constant pressure of, um, you know, that it's it's like you're overwhelmed and bored at the same time. It's a, it's a really uncomfortable feeling. <laughs> right. And I would feel so, so guilty for feeling... <laughs> you know, irritated by that, that the drinking was kind of the thing that kind of the glue that made me, gave me the illusion that I'm actually a better mother when I'm yeah. buzzed and um, because it made well, that also, boredom. And isn't it, it's like the Go illusion ahead. that we're different than we are. I mean, because one thing that Dana said in the beginning was, well, early on I was a social lubricant and I was told I was more fun, i.e. Mm-hmm. I was different than I was. I got the same feedback. And then sort of in motherhood, oh, I'm not supposed to feel bored and overwhelmed at the same time. Like, I'm supposed to be different than I am. Right. Yes. And that somehow the person you are when you're drinking is a better person. It validates that feeling that somehow sober, I'm not as interesting or not as worthy. Yeah. Yes. Dana, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about in this past year, what sorts of things do you find are helpful for you in maintaining your recovery? What sort of tools do you use to get help you get through the, the difficult year that you've had? Um, gosh, I guess there's been different tools throughout the year that I've had to use. Very early on, one um, thing I had to really practice is I had to um, think through the drink, and I'd have to... Um, I'd have to imagine myself actually drinking because that first glass always sounds nice, right? But uh-huh. I'd have to then say, well, I'd have that first glass and then it ends, you know, at the bottle and a half to two bottles and then that doesn't feel good. So I'd have to bring myself to that place. Uh-huh. Um, and like I said earlier, towards the end, there was no nice place. <laughs> so it was a little bit easier to imagine myself there. Um, and yeah. imagine myself waking up feeling horrible um, and the anxiety attacks at 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> definitely recovery meetings. Um, I that, that Yahoo group that I mentioned earlier evolved into a Facebook support group, and I was on that thing not even hourly. I mean, I was on that thing every minute for the first month or two. Um, and I got a lot of support that way. Um, I actually, I'm, I feel really lucky and grateful. I, I'm in an area where I've, I've, um, been able to meet in person many women that I've met online. And so I've really relied on them to help me through it. And then, and the other thing I had at the very beginning is I guess I was angry. I was so angry at my husband. I was so angry at myself. 
that I kept telling myself when I wanted a drink, I'm not going to let, you know, I, I was very much a victim, and I, I still struggle with that, but I, I think I have. <laughs> I'm getting through it, but I was very much a victim, and I'm not going to let them take this away from me. That was my mentality yeah. at the beginning. I want this so bad, but no matter what he does, I'm not going to let him take this from me, and I held on to that mm-hmm. like a crazy woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and then, I, you know, I started working steps, um, and just learning a lot about myself. And I was fairly lucky in that the obsession of the alcohol was lifted, you know, maybe two, three months in, and I consider myself very lucky for that. Um, So -hmm. then it became a matter of just um, those rare stressful times. I didn't need it anymore anymore. you know, toward, it, it, when I was drinking, when I was active, I needed alcohol even when I was happy. You know, those rare moments yeah, are yeah. not happy, but um, relaxing or in a in a yeah. place I should want to be. And so, um, luckily, like I said, that was every once in a while it sneaks up on me. I'll think, oh, it would be really nice to have dinner on the balcony and a glass of wine, and then I kind of have to mentally kick myself. But for the most part that obsession was gone fairly early on. So it was just, it's a matter, and I'm still working on it very much, a matter of finding ways to um, to calm down because I'm a very mm. emotional person and my feelings, and I'm working on this, but my feelings really rule my actions, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. Um, so I'm really trying to work on... Um, you know, maybe some meditation and trying to work out my feelings a little bit better. And I'm doing that, like I said, you know, working a 12-step program and um, reaching out to women who've been here before me and men who've been here, you know, anyone who's been here before me. Um, yeah. I have a brother who is in recovery. He's, uh, I think he's got seven years. I reach out to him a lot, and he's helpful and um yeah, so those are some of the things I try to I try to do. The twelve step program, though, for me is is really huge. That's that's a well, really. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead, Catherine. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Al. Sorry. I was going to say that one of the things that I was really inspiring to me about your story is that, you know, at some point, all of us have to take a leap of reaching out and admitting we need help, whether it's online or through somebody we know in recovery or taking that brave step to meet women and go to a recovery meeting. And, you know, I I think it's a really important part of your story that, you know, it's not like a magical wand. Like it didn't, you didn't go to a meeting and have that. It does happen to some people, but it didn't have that moment of, of, you know, oh, thank goodness I don't have to drink anymore. You kept trying. You'd get 30 days and then you'd relapse and then you'd come back and, it is a journey, but the the key to all of it is this. What I what I heard is a willingness. You know, even if the evidence is mounting to the contrary yeah. and we can't manage to stay sober, you know, there's there's is always worth trying. But it 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 invariably involves reaching out and talking to people who understand and, get, and finding other people, women and men in recovery, that can help us along the journey and. Um, it can be very frustrating when you're trying to get sober and you feel like you just can't get more than a few days or can't get more than a month. But in your story, it's evidence that it's you know keep on plugging because it you know it comes when it's ready to come. I think that's really Absolutely. amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. One thing that I was thinking about when you're talking about the whole concept of feelings, you know, those freaky things that mm. start coming up, and now we have to deal with them. I I do think that women in particular in this in sort of western culture are told we shouldn't have them mm-hmm. or like an overly emotional woman is like, you know, emotional and and that's a bad thing. Um now I think that happens to men too in a different way. They're supposed to have a stiff upper lip. And we're, I don't know what we're supposed to be, just sort of quietly beautiful or something. Um, <laughs> which I know I am. But of course, me I mean, too. Please, like, you know, I just, I think that, you know, now it, it's that 
numbing impact of alcohol just says, okay, you know, now you're not having any emotions. Smooth out that line to make everybody else more comfortable with who yeah, we are. That is something I definitely struggle with. Growing up, I was always told I was too emotional. I was taking Me too. sensitive. And yes. um, I, I will say one thing: I've, I've, I finally come to the realization, and I never would have, I never would have gotten here without working, you know, a twelve-step program. Is that, that that it was okay that I was too emotional? I was just dealing with somebody who couldn't handle and felt guilt from those emotions that I was hmm. expressing. So, you know, it, it, one thing I've really learned is it's it's not me, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, That's really powerful, yeah. So, um, well, and in fact, your sensitivity, be- it's prob- your sensitivity is probably one of your biggest gifts, you know? That's probably how you connect really deeply with people, and it's, it's it's probably something that you really bring to the world that's super positive, but not everybody's going to be willing to go there. And you know what? That's kind of their problem. Sorry if it makes you uncomfortable, but yeah, you know, we have to get in recovery to a place where, where we say, Oh, right. It's not, it's, it's, I'm, I'm okay. at exactly the way I am. Exactly. That is such a huge p- component of it too, because when you combine that, you know, the sensitivity and, and the emotionality of, of just who we are as people with the uh, people-pleasing part of it. That was something I struggled with because it's true that my sensitivity towards others is one of my greatest assets and also one of my greatest liabilities because I could figure out pretty quickly if you were somebody that was uncomfortable with emotions and I can kind of morph into, you know, the the mirror that you needed me to be for you. And so mm-hmm. when I got sober, and that's something, you know, even I had a chunk of sobriety before, but I never really addressed the people-pleasing aspect of my, you know, as part of my recovery. Um, but what I developed in sobriety was an awareness that I was people-pleasing. So I was sober and still, you know, not being totally authentic or morphing into whatever it is I thought you wanted me to be. And I, it felt gross to me because I wasn't numbing that out, but I didn't know how to stop that behavior because I was still so afraid of rejection and so afraid of abandonment. And, and um, you know, after my, my relapse, I've spent the past year really working on being okay with people not being okay with me. And finally having that realization that you just described so well, Dana, of like if somebody has a problem with me for who I am, it's, it says way more about them than it does about me. And, you know, particularly in going through a separation and divorce, which I'm in the middle of too, and, and having to have healthy boundaries with that. And, you know, that, that the other piece of what you shared, Dana, that I totally relate to, that we hear this in recovery all the time, is that feelings aren't facts. And mm-hmm. it used to drive me absolutely crazy, these little bumper sticker things that people say because they're <laughs> infuriatingly true. Um, but I would have a thought and it would become a feeling and it go immediately into an action. Just like you described, like I, I couldn't, yes. I couldn't sit with anything. I couldn't sit with anger. I couldn't sit with. I couldn't even identify anger. I didn't even have a right to be angry at anybody in my own mind. Mm. So to be able to not just identify the emotion, but then like not do anything with it right away, just let it kind of exist for a while. That's been something I have to practice really diligently because. You know, I want to fix everything. I want everything and everyone to be okay right now. You know, I don't, I don't want to. <laughs> yeah. I don't want anyone to be uncomfortable in any situation, even strangers. You know, I don't want them to be uncomfortable with me either. And that's 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 a you know, it's hard work, but it's it's cumulative. Like I'm getting better and better at it, and in the process, I'm figuring me out because I'm not giving pieces of myself away to everybody that that I know and love, and even people that I've just met. But it's challenging. It's definitely something that takes work. Yeah. And I'd be interested to hear how both of you say that impacts your your now women in recovery and you're also single moms. And so, mm. you know, how do you bring that into your you know, I'm sure you're I'm sure we have listeners out there who are in that position and are, are sort of wondering about that. Like how are you dealing, Dana, with with your kids and how does it inform has your recovery inform your new family uh, structure? Um, well, I mean, luckily I or am that sober. So I can... What's that? Is that another show? I mean, maybe that's uh, a topic. But... <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> but, 
you know, luckily I am sober because if I wasn't, I, I, I mean, I don't know how I would do this, but you know, I wouldn't be able to pay attention to them. You know, I thought I was paying attention to them, but I certainly was not and very much wrapped up in myself. Um, so what I find um, is that I am, while not perfect by any means, I am able to be there for them a little bit more. I'm able to, you know, they're now, um, my son just turned eight and my daughter's about to be 11. So they're certainly um, more aware. And I, I'm I'm pretty open with my older, my daughter, about my recovery um, in very simple form. Um, you know, I'll tell her I'm going to a meeting or uh, we talk about, um you know, I'm coming up on a year, and I tell her, you know, I'm coming up on a year, yay, and she's yay, and, you know, very simple um, uh, discussions on it. Um, But it helps me to talk to them maybe a little bit about what they're going through because they've had a huge change, obviously, in their life in the last year. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's, you know, Working on me has helped me be there for them a little bit more. Um, there are certainly times where I probably get a little more frustrated than I need to be um, because it's, you know, they're with their dad every other weekend and one night a week. But for the most part, you know, they're we're together a lot. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you know, there is definitely a, a level of frustration sometimes. But for the most part, I try to remain more even keel and just listen to them more and there's mm. you know there's things that have come up working my 12 step program where um I get to be a better mom um than you know um if I may back up just a second when I was growing up um I grew up in a very anxious my my mother is a very anxious and depressed person and I say time and time again I am grateful for I am a grateful alcoholic. I used to listen, I used to hear that in meetings and it would just grate on my nerves. How can you be a grateful <laughs> alcoholic? What? And I <laughs> I got to a point where I am a grateful alcoholic because I now get to work on things that my mother is still struggling with. And you know, I'm very anxious and I have a tendency to get depressed and I now can work on it for me and help my children through it because I see a lot of it in my children too. But now I get to help them through that so that hopefully they'll be, you know, mentally healthy (laughs) as much as possible when they grow up. And I wouldn't have that without having gone through what I've gone through. So I think, I think it's really helped me to become a better parent. It made me a really bad parent for a really long time, but in the end, hopefully it will make me a better parent to them. And uh, I can, you know, I can listen to them now and I can help them work through what this divorce means to them. And um, I couldn't have done that before. So I'm just grateful. That is yeah, so it's like well healing said. of the lineage. Yeah. It's like healing the lineage, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're, cha- we're changing things because going forward, we don't have to make the same destructive choices that maybe happened to us when we were growing up or, you know, our moms hopefully. didn't have those gifts. Yeah, yeah hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. Well, I, know, I think we're, it's we're definitely, doing it anyway. definitely true. It's something that I, I love. I love how you describe that, Dana. You described it absolutely beautifully. And one of the things that I, I was just talking about this to some recovery friends of mine yesterday, how, you know, I'm learning, I mean, I've always had feelings, I've always had feelings to spare for crying out loud, but I've also, mm. I've never really had language behind my feelings or being able to control them or understand them or articulate them. And so, you know, as my kids are going, my kids are just, uh, they're 12 and 9, they're just right, right around your kids' age. And um, to be able to learn the tools that I'm learning as I'm caring for myself, you know, finding my voice and showing up for myself and being able to honor how I feel and articulate it and kind of keep it in perspective and keep it in balance, I'm then able to turn around and talk to them about the language of feelings, like to be able to talk about how they feel. And it isn't necessarily going to fix anything. It isn't going to make anything worse. But that 
by talking about it, we can all heal together in this in this part of our lives, in this phase of our lives. And um, you know, when I was drinking, my daughter in particular, who's an old soul and very hyper aware and very sensitive herself, I think she felt. And I know she felt more grown up than she needed to be, that she was managing everybody else's emotions the way that I used to. And, you know, we can be vulnerable together and we can be strong together and we can Mm -hmm. talk about it in ways that there's no way without recovery that I could do that. And, you know, my kids witnessed in my relapse, they witnessed what active alcoholism really looks like. They had only really known me as somebody in recovery. They couldn't remember me as an alcoholic, an active alcoholic before and so they saw this a lot more ugliness than I ever would have wanted them to see. But I also have the opportunity now to model to them that, you know, I've said this before many times, that we're not, we are, we are not our mistakes. We're not defined by that. We're defined by what we do about them. And so, you know, my daughter's very anxious, and if she gets a grade that she perceives as being bad at school, I mean, that that things that feel shameful don't need to be covered up, that we can bring them into the light of day mm-hmm. and we can handle them and we can move forward. And um, because I'm sort of living my amends to them and I'm, I'm modeling that behavior for them, it's brought us closer in a lot of ways. I mean, it's not it's not the ideal way to go about finding a parenting lesson, but, <laughs> you know, it's I never would have imagined in that in that hopeless place that I was before I got sober where I was lying on the bathroom floor wanting to just die that this experience could in turn make me a better parent, that it could make me somebody who is able to communicate better with my children and and, and with myself. Um, It's a huge, huge gift, and it's hardly smooth, and it's hardly easy, but it's real. You know, it's something that we share together. It's a pretty incredible thing. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that interested me, Dana, too, is that, you know, going back to what you said about – trying out recovery meetings and we always say this on the show that you know find a community we did a whole program about how to build a recovery community and our website thebubblehour.com has a list of different resources you found a program that works for you there's lots of ways to do that but talk a little bit about that feeling of sort of that first day of saying like all right i'm just going to I'm just going to do it and sort of what you expected to find and then what you found instead and then how that's kind of evolved just in terms of identifying with the people in your recovery community. Um, I I guess, you know, a little bit for me because I had been in and out for about three years. By the time I'd finally surrendered, I'd I'd gotten Mm -hmm. desperate enough. I knew that there were a lot of women like me. Um, and there were women in recovery that I looked up to. Um, you know, now I may look up to a woman in recovery just because she, um, you know, she had the strength to go through what she went through and recover. But back when I was first um, going to meetings, um, it what worked for me was finding women who were professionals or um, who were really good mothers, you know, things that I strive to be that I always feel I fall short of. Um, but I would look at them and think that it, that I wasn't so bad. If they were If they were going through something similar, then I wasn't so bad, you know. I, I wasn't mm. the scum of the earth. You know, that there were other women like me. Um, Because it's, you know, like I said earlier, when I thought of an alcoholic, I thought of somebody living under a bridge who had lost everything. Um, Yeah. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't professionals. It wasn't mothers. It wasn't people who had it together. And when I, you know, when I realized that we come in all different sorts and sizes and that there were people um, who maybe on the outside did have it all together. It, it, I connected to that a little bit. Um, and then, um, you know, I don't know if that quite answered <laughs> answered the question. but It does. Oh, definitely. 
Okay. <laughs> um, but you know, like I said, you know, I've, I've, I, I was lucky. I was able to. I've, I've been able to meet many different women from all across the country, actually, um, that I've met online, and they've, you know, they've come to my area. But there's a lot that live here too, and I've made some, some great friends who are in so many, you know, similar situations, or you know, just, just mothers who. But they have their lives together now. You know, now that they're not drinking, they really can focus on these things that mean a lot to me. And um, it's so inspiring to to know these women and to see what they're doing with their lives. And, um, you know, it gives me hope. And And now, you know, now a year into this, I'm starting to see some of that come through for me. And it, it's it's amazing just amazing um but i saw it in them first and it gave me hope so yeah i mean i that's think that's why it's so true, essential that's just i was just going to say it's just essential to to meet people who are in recovery so that we can identify we're we're not alone that we don't have to feel ashamed um you know, and who can support us and who understand what we're going through in a way that other people can't. And that that yeah. brings us around to the topic that so, so often comes up in these shows, too, that has to do with the stigma and the stereotype that surrounds alcoholism and addiction. And, and I think it keeps a lot of us alone and stuck for, for a long time, the sort of fear of being found out, the fear of you know, being judged or, or because people, there are a lot of people out there who don't understand, you know, that there really isn't any stereotype to an addict or an alcoholic. We're everywhere and we look like everybody. Um, but that, can you, if you're comfortable with it, could you talk a little bit too about, you know, one of the things that I think people have a fear of before they get sober is what am I going to tell everybody and how is it going to be received and what if people find out and, what has that been like in your first year of recovery? I mean, are you open about it with close friends or family members that aren't in recovery? Has that turned out? Did you have fears around that, and did they come to fruition, or what? How has it evolved for you in this first year? Oh wow! It's it, you know, at the very beginning, I didn't want to tell anybody. Um, <laughs> I was so embarrassed, so embarrassed, and. Um, throughout the year, you know, I started telling, you know, I'd tell one person here, I'd tell another person there. Um, and now at this point, um, just recently I got a tattoo to commemorate my year, and it has the date on it, and I posted it on my regular face, you know, on Facebook. And uh, I, I knew I would have people asking, what does that date represent? And I prepared myself for it, and I, I, you know, when I got that question, I would just private message people. Um, so, you know, it, it's it's slow going. I'm not the whole world doesn't know at this point, but I have definitely told people who ask. Um, it started coming up in regular conversation for me because I'm. Um, anytime I've been in a social situation, um, you know, I had to go to my first holiday party at work and I didn't drink and I would you know aren't aren't you drinking you want something to drink no I don't drink and most of the time people just I I was really surprised most of the time people don't care (laughs) people don't care what I'm doing right you know I I thought I thought I'd get all these questions like why aren't you drinking well why don't you drink and really I tell people you know I, I don't say I'm not drinking tonight I'm really honest and I say I don't drink and most of the time, that's the end of it. And I'm like, well, don't you want to know why? <laughs> you know, and they don't. <laughs> Nobody cares. Um, <laughs> so that's pretty amazing. Um, but yeah, as, as I get as I get closer, I'm I'm okay with people in my regular life knowing. I've, I've come out to my family. Um, you know, I've actually I've asked family members. I've asked my dad to watch my kids so I can go to meetings or so that I could be here tonight. Um, mm-hmm. And I've started a little bit. I think the last holdout for me right now is still maybe some of my um, some of the parents of my kids' friends. Yeah. And I I'm I guess I'm a, I, I'm willing to tell people I don't drink. You know, tell these people they're the parents that I don't drink, but I'm not 
really ready to go into more than that right now and I, and it is mm-hmm. a fear of judgment and i know i i'm i'm close to getting over that and i know you know i'm i'm about ready to just say you know i am who i am i don't drink and yeah. um, and uh, but overall i'm i'm really comfortable with it now but it took me a while to get here it did and it was slow going and um a little bit more progress and i'll i'll uh, be really comfortable with it one of the yeah, things and that i, I also found kind of feel like do people need to does everybody need to know our you know all of our like you wouldn't just sit there and say oh i'm a diabetic you know right yeah, but you know that's why I'm not eating cake. Um, I don't know, but I think you bring up a good point that it's a it's an evolution, isn't it? Yes, it is, and I I you know, it's a fine line for for well, I mean I'm in a little bit of a dis- different situation because I'm so out there with my recovery, but that was not always the case. But I have found that by selectively and carefully being in front of it. Um, you know, I don't blab it to everybody in the supermarket line or, or, you know, not ask, not answered. I don't offer up more information than people are curious about. However, I, I'm stunned by how rarely, if ever, I have gotten, at least not to my face, but I think for the most part, I, I get support. And I don't walk around talking about being an alcoholic. I don't walk around talking about everything that I did while I was drinking, but I do talk about being somebody who's in recovery. And People are really curious about that because everybody has a vision of an alcoholic in their head, but very few people have a a stigma or a stereotype in their head about what someone in recovery looks like. And more often than not, by being carefully open and sharing what I feel comfortable with and what's appropriate with people, then it opens them up to share with me. And it has brought a lot of people closer into my life, life, and I've met a lot of, you know, people who are what we call normies, you know, normal drinkers, who don't judge who have a genuine curiosity about it and who can get sort of more educated about what a what recovery really means and so it is kind of like easing into a hot bath and it, I don't feel that everybody is safe but I had especially after my DUI I had huge fear that you know no one's ever going to drop their kids off at my house again and no one's ever going to trust me again and it took time I had to build the trust back up um but people get there and People do understand suffering and struggle, and they do also understand, you know, redemption and recovery in ways that surprised me. And you know, part of the part of our mission by the power of story is helping people understand what recovery really means, um, and to break that stigma and to break that stereotype. So, you know, not everybody needs to, nor should they, but it can be an extremely freeing experience as it progresses. At least it has in my life, um, because people ping off the shame they see in me. And if I'm not hanging my head in shame over it and I'm working as best I can to heal and recover, that's what people that's what people see. It doesn't really give them a lot of I don't know, ammunition to use against me because I'm I'm trying and I'm out there doing my best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it can be can be very healing. And certainly somebody like you sharing your story on a on a radio show like ours, it helps. It helps a lot of people get more educated as to what this all means. So yeah. it's very that's a powerful powerful example and um i'm sure that as as your recovery progresses you'll find uh, the other thing that i notice is that because addiction touches so many people directly or indirectly that people come to me with their own stories and it forms its own little community it kind of the community kind of finds me as a result of it which is really cool mm. yeah very neat well we are coming kind of close to the end of our show. It's always amazing to me how, how fast these conversations go. <laughs> I know. Um, I know. It's it's uh it's been really, really, really wonderful to hear your story, Dana, and to have you on the show. But one of the things that we like to do towards the end of our shows is to go around and just sort of talk to people about some maybe a key takeaway they had tonight or something that they want to emphasize to um our listeners tonight. Um but Dana I want to start with kind of a specific question to you it's it's a big question but it's also something that i think people who are listening who may still be struggling would appreciate you know for those people who are listening that are still struggling or who are thinking about trying to get help or or find sobriety you know what are one or two pieces of advice that you would give them that that were really helpful to you as you were entering into this journey and taking the leap into changing your life 
Um, definitely finding a community, um, finding people that you can go to when you need help and asking for help. That's so hard. Um, mm. But there are, you know, there are people out there who are willing to help, and we need to take them up on that. Um, and we need to let go of the shame and 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 know that um, it's going to be okay. That was, you know, like I said earlier, that's really hard for me. Um, I I live in what I'm feeling right now, and um, you know, letting go and and just accepting a feeling right now. Um, you know, working on that for me was huge. Um, mm. But I, I, for me, the biggest thing: find a community, um, yeah. find some, find people who will be there for you. And there are people out there, um, even when we think there is no one. There no, are. People. That's true. That's true. <laughs> We're everywhere. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Catherine, so. what about you? What is what is the takeaway you have from tonight's conversation? The word that's coming to mind is authenticity, and that's what I really hear in Dana, in your voice and in your story. Um, you know, when I was a kid, my favorite record was Marlo Thomas's Free to Be You and Me. And oh, yeah. for a long time, I, you know, I I used alcohol as a so- social lubricant because I was, I'm so intense and weird and like, you know, I was just told I was more fun and I felt more relaxed. And then, you know, kind of pushing down all those feelings because I was, you know, as a kid, I was told, like, you're just, you're just too big of a personality. And I was so anxious all the time. And what I really hear from you is that, you know, look, we are who we are and we can learn to manage through things like anxiety, but that our sensitivity is not a bad thing. It's a gift. And so how can we use it to everybody's advantage to make things better rather than having it turn in on ourselves? So it's just so much of what you said and and even just your honesty in your story of like, yeah, that's, this is this is what it was like, you know, not sugarcoating it, but also like it doesn't have to be that way anymore and it's not. And you know, being authentic, it's I'm really I'm really moved by that. So thank you so much, Dana. Well, thank you. Well said, Catherine. That, that I was very moved by what the way that Dana described that in her story as well and um I think one of the things that I also took away from Dana what you shared is you know, and this this phrase just kind of kept popping into my head is just keep trying, keep going. Mm-hmm. You know, even when we yeah. don't feel worth it, and even if we're not even sure why, if, if our sole motivation is that we don't want to feel so empty and awful, hang on to that. If our motivation early on is just that we're going to show them whoever they are that we're not going <laughs> to, they don't have any power over us anymore, then so be it. You know, whatever gets us trying because. I just love hearing you now a year into sobriety and you sound so, like Catherine said, authentic and honest and strong and vulnerable. I think it it takes very, very strong people to be vulnerable. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, you made it. You're a year sober and it it wasn't a magic bullet. It took a lot of trying and taking that leap over and over and over again and not giving up. It's a really, really powerful part of your story. And, you know, it doesn't matter how much time and sobriety we have. We have we get up every morning and we do it all again. And that that piece of what you shared, that part of who you are, is very inspiring to me. So that's a big takeaway that I have from from hearing your story. And I I thank you for that because it certainly helped me today. Definitely. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so to close close the show um, tonight we'd like to direct you to our parent organization shiningstrong.org there you will find links to all of our resources including the bubble hour and crying out now and other initiatives around recovery advocacy we talked tonight a lot about um, places to start and where places to reach out if you're taking that leap and, and want to find people who are in recovery and our website is a good place to start doing that 
You can visit the Bubble Hours website at thebubblehour.com to find a link to many recovery resources, including Jean's blog, Unpickled, and Ellie's blog. I'm reading a script, can you tell? My blog, One Crafty Mother. Our email address is thebubblehour at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and please let us know your feedback about tonight's show and any other topic suggestions you may have. We thank all of you for listening to the Bubble Hour, and Dana, especially you for being our guest. Thank you so much. And thank I you, hope Dana. You all have a great evening. Thanks so much. Thank you both. Thanks, you ladies. Too. Good Take night. care. Good night. Bye. Bye.